Welcome to part two of our series on Jesus, gender, and sexuality. How do you feel about talking about sex? Do you remember your first sex talk? I know I do. A very awkward one with my father when I was about nine. Today we are venturing into that territory, which can be awkward, can be anxious, always quite personal. Last Sunday, Lee laid for us an important foundation when we come to this whole topic area. The important foundation is that if you're a human being, and I say we all are, if you're a human being, then you are known and loved by God. Whatever your age, whatever your religious background, whatever your sexual orientation, whatever your sexual experiences, whether your sins are obvious or your sins are well hidden, you are fully known by God and fully loved by God. Every human being has that in common. As we turn to the topic of sex and marriage today, I want to acknowledge that along with this common foundation, we have a wide variety of circumstances and experiences. Some of us here are currently married. Some of us are no longer married, widowed or divorced. Some of us have never been married but would like to get married in the future. Some have never been married and never expect to get married. For some, your experience of marriage is or was really good. For others, your experience of marriage was or is very difficult. Some who are unmarried are quite content that way. Others who are unmarried feel a deep and anxious longing to be with a partner. So we come to this topic from a lot of different angles. And I'm nervous this morning because I have to give the same sermon to everyone. And so if I end up saying something in a way that's unhelpful for you in your circumstances, I want to apologise in advance. I'd love to hear from you, love to have a conversation that does take into account your unique story. Another reason I mention our different circumstances is because this talk on sex and marriage is not just a talk for married people. It's important for all of us as a church family to hear from God's Word on this topic. And the same will apply to next week's talk, which deals with singleness. That will also be a talk that we all need to hear. Uh, we'd love your questions through this series. Uh, later on, there'll be a QR code on the screen. Uh, there's also a link in your church news and on Facebook. Love to hear your questions submitted online. Uh, and we'll release a little video during the week uh, with well-thought-through answers to those questions. Okay, end of preamble. Here comes the actual talk. In 21st century Australia, you'll be aware there is a wide variety of perspectives on sex and marriage. And what I want to try to do today is to uncover a truly biblical understanding of these topics. And I say truly biblical with emphasis because there are some fake imitations we need to watch out for. As we compare all sorts of different views, there's one key question I want to ask. It's the question, what are sex and marriage for? What is the purpose? What is the goal of these things? 
Because I reckon if we get really clear on that question, all sorts of other details will fall into place. Now let's start by thinking about a view that will be pretty familiar to you. I'm going to call it the liberal Western view. This is the view of Hollywood, of New York sitcoms, of hip-hop lyrics, and it filters through to a lot of the rest of the culture around us. What does it say about the purpose of sex and marriage? I think it's pretty clear. Sex is for pleasure. And sexual satisfaction is, according to this view, really the most important thing there is. That's the bottom line. Put the crown on sexual satisfaction. Marriage, according to this liberal Western view, is for happiness. You get married if you think it'll make you happy. You stay married if it keeps on making you happy. Happiness is what marriage is all about. Now, this perspective is why when religious people come along and they say they're not in favour of calling, say, a same-sex relationship a marriage, non-religious people find that incredibly offensive. Because if marriage is fundamentally about happiness, then denying anyone access to marriage can only mean that you want them to be unhappy. This difference in underlying assumptions is why debate about marriage laws in Australia has been so ugly. Anyway, marriage is for happiness, sex is for pleasure, and sexual satisfaction is number one. That is the liberal Western view. You've probably come across it. But next I want to warn you about a fake Christian view of sex and marriage. It looks Christian, but it's it's fake. What it is is actually just the worldly view with a little bit of religion stuck on top. It goes like this. We all know sexual satisfaction is the most important thing. But God says you can't have sex outside marriage. Therefore, the most important thing is to get married so you can have sex. Does this sound a bit familiar? I reckon plenty of Christian teenagers hold this view. And it's good to recognise that God has the right to define boundaries for sex. But this view is built on entirely worldly foundations. And it ends up saying that if you don't get married and have sex, you've failed in life. You've missed out on the most important thing. It ends up placing unfair expectations on marriages expecting them to provide ultimate fulfilment. This is a fake Christian view of marriage sex. Don't be fooled by it. Now, there's another view that looks kind of Christian, but actually isn't. It's a conservative view. It's widespread in non-Western cultures. It's the view that you might reach if all you read was the Old Testament. On this view, the most important thing in this life is to ensure your legacy by having children. Children are the way you can live on beyond your own death. And so the most important thing in life is to get married and produce children. And this sounds pretty religious, doesn't it? Sounds pretty kind of family values oriented. But it's actually a sub-Christian view. It's also oppressive. It also ends up saying that if you don't get married or can't have children, you're finished. You're a failure. It puts unbearable pressure on children to provide all the meaning and fulfilment in their parents' lives. This is a fake Christian view of marriage and sex. Watch out for it. 
Today I want to uncover the fully biblical view of sex and marriage, which I think is truly liberating. When we read the whole Bible, we find its answer about what marriage and sex are for. And here's the main point up front I'm going to give to you. Marriage is given to us to be a signpost. Let's flip through the Bible together and I'll show you what I mean. We read today from Genesis 2. It's on page 3. Why don't you open up Genesis 2. Flip past the preface. Page 3. There we are. This is where it all began. In the creation account in Genesis 2, there was originally just a man who God had formed out of the dust of the earth. But in verse 18 of Genesis 2, the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now, one of the questions that was sent in during the week uh, asked about this. It's easy for us to assume that the problem here is that the man is lonely. But that's not it. The problem here is that the man has a job to do and he is inadequate to the task. Humanity has been appointed to be God's representative rulers, his image bearers in his creation. They've been commissioned in the previous chapter to be fruitful and increase in number, to fill the earth and subdue it. But he can't fill and rule over God's creation by himself. This is one of him. And he certainly can't be fruitful and multiply on his own. So God determines to make, literally, a helper opposite him. That word helper doesn't imply any kind of inferiority. It means a counterpart, a partner in fulfilling humanity's mission. As we read on, God forms this counterpart from the same stuff that the man is made from. And when the Lord brings the woman to the man, the man exclaims in verse 23, This is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And this is the point where the narrator drops in and explains the point of this story. Have a look at verse 24. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Genesis 2 gives us a baseline for a truly biblical understanding of sex and marriage. It's not the final word, but it's an important starting point. It shows us that marriage is not just a social convention that gradually evolved in human cultures because it was helpful for preserving order. No, marriage is something that God created, which exists regardless of what people think about it. Genesis 2 shows us the first marriage, the blueprint. And the blueprint involves one man and one woman. Yes, as the Old Testament progresses, Things get terribly messed up. We see polygamy enter the picture. But not here, not in God's good creation. Here we find a man and woman who become united. And that unity is possible because they are not different species. None of the animals can be part of this picture. They're not different species. They're not from different planets, Mars and Venus. But nor are they identical. The difference between them is what's going to enable them to be fruitful and fill the earth. They're different, but they become 
one flesh. That phrase points to the profound unity between husband and wife. It also points to the way that that unity is both created and expressed by having sex. It also points to the way that unity bears the fruit of children, where the flesh of the mother and the flesh of the father is intertwined into a new image bearer in God's world. We see here the purpose of sex, what sex is for. The purpose of sex is to create and express the unity of marriage. Yes, it's pleasurable. That pleasure is a good gift from God. Yes, it produces children, but those children too are an expression of the union between father and mother. As one writer puts it, sex is a divinely given adhesive. It glues two people together. And let me be a bit explicit here. What we're talking about here is not only intercourse, but sexual intimacy in all its forms. Sexual intimacy overall is a powerful glue for uniting two people together. That's why as the Bible goes on, it warns us against using that glue in the wrong contexts. Superglue does not make a good toy. The wrong use of superglue can really harm people. That's why in every movie that features a couple who are friends with benefits, have you noticed it never stays that way? It always gets complicated, often gets ugly. Because sex is a powerful adhesive. Its purpose is to make two people into one flesh. But we haven't yet reached the full biblical picture of sex and marriage. For that we're going to need the New Testament. Now the New Testament doesn't cancel out the old. Jesus himself quotes approvingly from Genesis 2 at one point. But the New Testament does have some important things to add to our picture of sex and marriage. Flip with me over to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. I'll tell you when I've found the page number. You can yell it out if you find it first. I reckon it's 1668. 1668. This is a chapter where Paul tells husbands to love their wives as Christ loves the church. And we understand that as a kind of an example or an illustration, right? Just as Jesus was loving, so husbands should also be loving. But then we understand there's more to it. Look at Ephesians 5, verse 31. This is where Paul quotes from Genesis. He says, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. He goes on, This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. Hang on, when Paul quotes from Genesis 2, he says he's actually not talking about the husbands and wives reading his letter. The one flesh relationship he's talking about is between Jesus and everyone who trusts in him. What's the ultimate purpose of marriage between men and women? What's the goal of this thing called marriage? What's it made for? It's made to point to something greater. It's made to be a signpost to the ultimate relationship that will truly fulfill us. Christ and his church, that's the ultimate one flesh relationship. That's the ultimate union 
between two who are different. It's not that God invented marriage back in the beginning and then much later sent Jesus to save his people and looked around for a way to explain that relationship and went, oh, you know what, it's actually a lot like a marriage. No, it wasn't an illustration that God thought about later. The Bible's point is that the reason marriage was invented in the first place was to be a signpost to this greater reality. God chose to build into the fabric of human culture this mini-sized model of the union between Jesus and his church. Because that's the union that will save your life. The fact that marriage is a signpost helps us to make a bit more sense of what we read today from Matthew 22. Why don't we flip back there? Matthew 22. Page 1408. In this chapter, Jesus was asked a question by some Sadducees about what things will be like in the resurrection age. The Sadducees were resurrection skeptics. They come up with this concocted example to show that they think that resurrection is ridiculous. And in answering their question, Jesus says that in the new creation, When God's kingdom has come, when death and sin are defeated and abolished, when there is no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain, there is also no more marriage. And so we can infer no more sex. (coughs) At a gut level, what do you make of that? I reckon at the gut level, a lot of us will conclude... If there's no sex in the perfect world to come, then the perfect world is actually not perfect. It's actually missing one of the best parts of this world. It's easy to think that way. And if you really think that way, you should change the Lord's Prayer. Don't pray, your kingdom come. Pray, your kingdom come, but not till after I've had all the sex I want. But one of the greatest mistakes that humans make ever since the beginning is to take a good thing and treat it as the ultimate thing. To take something that should be enjoyed and turn it into something to be worshipped. Let's not make that mistake with sex. What Jesus says here about marriage being finite actually makes sense when we understand marriage and sex as a signpost. If you go and step out onto Malton Road and look around, can you see any signs telling you how to get to North Epping? No. Because you've arrived. You don't need signs anymore. You're enjoying the glorious reality itself. (laughs) The age to come is when Christians get to enjoy the glorious reality of the ultimate marriage as the bride of Christ. We get a little picture of this in Revelation chapter 19. Let's put there, right near the end, Revelation 19, page 1768. Page 1768. Revelation is a quirky book. The whole thing's in picture language. It's like describing a dream. Revelation 19, it's picturing how in the end, 
evil and all God's enemies will be finally defeated. And from verse 6, John the writer says, I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and loud peals of thunder, shouting, Hallelujah! For our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give Him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come. And His bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. As Christian believers, female and male, we are the bride of Christ. And we await that great wedding day. The great day when we see Jesus, our husband, face to face. And if you don't mind me pushing the metaphor a bit further just to make you squirm, we await the day when that marriage is consummated. When our unity with Christ is fully enacted and experienced. What will that be like? I don't know exactly. But I know it will be glorious. When we see the big picture that way, we start to understand how in the end, human marriage can go into retirement. Its signposting work is complete. Okay, so I've painted a very big picture here, the fully biblical picture of sex and marriage, spanning from the creation of humanity right through to the end of this age. What do we actually do with all this? We live in the middle of the story. Jesus is risen, but the rest of the world is not yet transformed. We belong to the new age, but we still inhabit this age. How should we do that? I promise this is a sermon for everyone. What I'm going to do here is say a few things to married people, and then a few things to unmarried people. Okay, if you're married, I want you to remember that your marriage is a signpost. Your marriage may often give you happiness, may often give you sexual satisfaction, your marriage may produce children, but in the end those are spin-off benefits, not its reason for existence. When you enjoy those good things, let them point you to the greater joy that is to come. But the fact that your marriage is only a signpost means that if those things aren't working too well, when your marriage disappoints you, and it's going to be when, not if, at one level that's okay. Because a signpost isn't there to provide complete fulfilment. But you point you to the thing that does. The thing that the signpost is pointing to reminds us then how to maintain the signpost. Uh, a little while ago, I saw one of those A-frame signs that tradies put outside the houses they're working on. Um, this one belongs to a house exterior cleaning service, you know, pressure cleaning the outside of the house. And there was just one problem. The sign was covered in mud. <laughs> it was not a great match for what it was reminding me of. How can you make sure that your marriage signpost is appropriate for what it's pointing to? How can you make sure that it keeps on pointing in the right direction? 
For married people, I've got three quick points and then a fourth longer one. Okay? Here we go. Firstly, Jesus is perfectly faithful in his commitment to his church. So, commit yourself to being faithful to your spouse. Guard yourself against the beginning of sexual distraction rather than waiting until you're about to fall off cliff. Work out how to be faithful in your thoughts and your words as well as your actions. Secondly, Jesus sticks with his church for eternity through thick and thin. So fight for your marriage. Persevere. Great trials will normally come to a marriage sooner or later. Invest. Work through conflict. Forgive. Of course it takes both partners to preserve a marriage. Let me say clearly that if you're unsafe in your marriage, get to a place of safety. Find help. Sometimes, sadly, marriages cannot be repaired. But if we see marriage as a signpost to an eternal reality, let's do everything in our power to make it last throughout this lifetime. Thirdly, use the gift of sex. It is a God-given adhesive and your marriage needs it. Newlywed couples quickly realise that good sex takes effort and thought. It's a learning process to get good at it. And as the seasons of life change, it takes ongoing attention to keep on making it work well. Can I acknowledge that for some couples, your sex life has gone so far off track that fixing it will be a long-term project, not a short-term project. Sometimes there are major obstacles. But do pursue the use of this God-given tool. Fourthly, and this is the longer one, marriage is about two different types of human being united together. Lean into that unity. This is where I want to say a little bit about those infamous Bible passages that say different things to husbands and wives. You ready? So much ink has been spilt on this. Some say, ah, it was written to a different culture, so just don't worry about it. But the whole Bible was written into a different culture. Are you going to throw out the whole thing? Others say, it's the Word of God, so don't think about it, just do what it says. But that's just a recipe for letting all your underlying assumptions run the show without even realising. Now, these passages need to be read both respectfully and thoughtfully. And the next 60 seconds, with fear and trembling, that's what I'm going to try and do. I've been reading these passages and thinking about them for years. Something I've realised fairly recently is that the different instructions to husbands and wives actually have a common denominator. These passages are fundamentally about husbands and wives leaning into the unity of their marriage. I think a big part of why it says different things to husbands and wives is because husbands and wives are generally in danger of undermining or ignoring that unity in different ways. And I think those different dangers have a biological origin. I'm digging this even, helping even deeper here, huh? When I start talking about biological differences, please don't misunderstand. 
I'm not going to go claiming that men are by nature aggressive or that women are by nature nurturing or any of that sort of rubbish. And I'm going to recognise that in the century since the Bible was written, all sorts of positive medical and social and financial changes and progress has happened. But it remains the case that husbands never go through pregnancy. Husbands never have to breastfeed babies. Husbands never have to have a baby habitat rebuilt inside them every month. Pregnancy and breastfeeding are wondrous things. And as women go through these things, they demonstrate amazing resilience and strength. But these things put wives generally in a more vulnerable position than husbands. These days, that difference is less pronounced, less obvious, but it's foolish to think that it's disappeared altogether. This biological difference means it's husbands who are more likely to deny the one flesh unity of their marriage by exploiting or dominating their wives, taking advantage of their stronger position. For wives, the danger is more likely to be to retreat, to undermine, to distrust their partner, to forget about the one flesh union and see their husband's stronger position as a threat rather than as an asset. The Bible's exhortation to both is to lean into that one flesh unity, to let your unity with your spouse be the thing that drives your behaviour amidst your differences in circumstances. I want to have a quick word to husbands here. Everyone else can just switch off your ears. Husbands, I look around all saints and I see a bunch of cases where husbands are stepping up and serving their wives sacrificially, especially in a crisis. When I say sacrificially serving, I of course don't just mean going to work and putting money in the bank. I want to honour the sacrificial service of husbands that I see. But as I look around all saints, can I say I also see some situations where it seems a lot like the wife is the one who makes all the sacrifices in the family. When the demands of family life compete with hobbies, discretionary time, preferences, time out with friends or sleep, is it always your wife who's picking up the slack for you and never the other way around? Maybe when you go home you should ask your wife if she sees you making sacrifices for her benefit. Might lead to an important conversation. A much more brief word to wives. If this has all got you thinking, maybe a question you could ask your husband is, do you feel like I give you space and trust to step up and serve? The call to all of us who are married is to make our marriages the best signposts we can by leaning into the unity that God has created. Okay, but what about those who are unmarried? What's the take-home? Actually, the first take-home point is exactly the same as for married people. Remember that marriage is only a signpost. Now, there are responsibilities and hardships that go with marriage which single people don't have to go through. But let's acknowledge there are plenty of blessings that go with marriage 
which single people don't get to enjoy. For example, faithfully following Jesus as an unmarried person will mean abstaining from sexual intimacy. But if marriage and sex is a signpost to a greater reality, and if by belonging to Jesus that greater reality is yours, then unmarried people aren't missing out on anything that is ultimate or eternal. In fact, this fully biblical view of marriage assigns a unique dignity to singleness. Marriage is a temporary signpost, but Christian singleness illustrates the way of eternity. Now, next week there'll be more to say about singleness, including how married people can support single people. But today, let's think briefly about how single people might support marriages. How can you help your married brothers and sisters maintain good quality signposts? You might straight away think about babysitting for a date night, and that'd be great. But surely there's much more than that. Having meaningful relationships with married people will give you opportunities to affirm them in the way they serve and support their spouse can also give you opportunities to remind your married friends that their marriage is only a signpost. Can you find those opportunities and make use of them? It's time to finish up. At the outset, I acknowledge that this can be an awkward topic. The awkwardness doesn't just come from prudish sensibilities. It also comes from the awareness of sins we've committed in this area sometimes from the memory of sins that have been committed against us. Sex is powerful. It can achieve great good and great harm. And so as we close, I want to point out that if you're a Christian believer, male, female, married, unmarried or whatever, you have the ultimate husband in Christ. A husband who is like you, but different. A husband who found himself in a stronger position but used that strength to be the perfect servant. A husband who went to the cross to take away your guilt and your shame. The rightful penalty for whatever you've done. He's taken that on himself. The humiliation of whatever's been done to you. He's taken that on himself. And so we can sing in anticipation those words from Revelation 19. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean was given her to wear.